Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. It's fall, and there is so much new to watch, listen to, read, and discuss. Whether you're binge-watching, downloading, or looking for the next great read, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast calls out the best, most creative, and most fun things out there. Something new to make you happy. Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find it on iTunes under podcasts. Once upon a time, the U.S. had it all worked out. Speak softly and carry a big stick. As we all learned in the seventh grade, those were the words of Teddy Roosevelt, his wise approach to the world. There was just one thing about it, and that was about the big stick. He didn't say how big it should be and how fast we should swing it and at who and how often. And those are questions that are bedeviling the United States right now. When they're cutting off the heads of Americans in a Middle East that is in a spin cycle of disintegration. And what is the U.S. US supposed to do about this? And with its big stick, which is the strongest military on earth. And how is that speaking softly thing really working out? Well, this sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will argue for and against this motion. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then you, our live audience here in New York, votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, first welcome Aaron David Miller. And Aaron David Miller, uh, you uh, are at the Wilson Center. You served for two decades at the Department of State, helping formulate U.S. policy on the Middle East and the Arab-Israeli peace process, an aspiring peacemaker. Uh, In 1990, though, you were working with Secretary of State James Baker, who said to you rather famously, uh, Aaron, if I had another life, I would want to be a Middle East specialist just like you, because it would mean guaranteed permanent employment. (laughs) Was he right about that? Baker Baker was one smart guy. He, He had no idea just how right he was. All right, thanks, Aaron David Miller. And Aaron, your partner is? Paul Pillar. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paul Pillar. Paul, welcome. And you are also arguing for the motion flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. You are a senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown, 28 years as an analyst at the CIA. You once said an interesting thing, that in major foreign policy decisions, though you were at the CIA, you said intelligence is not the decisive factor. It's actually something about the leader himself, his own strategic sense, his lessons from history, his personal experience, even his personal neuroses. Is that true for President Obama? Well, the president hasn't invited me to the White House for one of those chats over a beer to talk it over. But uh, like all of our other presidents, he's a human being and he's a political animal, too. And so the answer, John, is yes. All right. Thank you. Paul Pillar. Our motion is this. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And we have two teams arguing against the motion. Please, folks, let's welcome Michael Duran. Michael, you're a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and prior to that, uh, you were a professor at Princeton. You also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, in Public Diplomacy. You were a senior director for the Near East and North Africa. 
at the National Security Council. Um, and we were listening to a, a recent interview you gave where you actually advised people not to take up Middle Eastern studies. Uh, why is that? Um, because uh, it's so contentious that uh, if you say anything serious, you'll be deeply hated. Uh, so you, you have a choice between being boring and anodyne and, and liked or, or serious and hated. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Mike Duran, ladies and gentlemen. And Mike, your partner is? Wall Street Journal and Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, Brett Stevens. Brett Stevens, ladies and gentlemen. Brett, you are also arguing against the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Your, your background has just been described, so I'm going to skip uh, straight to your first book, which was called America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder, coming out in November. And Joe Lieberman said of this book, it's worth buying even if you only read Chapter 9. <laughs> What's in Chapter 9? Uh, well, the other uh, nine chapters are terrific, but in Chapter 9... <laughs> Uh, you get the world as I see it in 2019 when Hillary Clinton is president and wondering why she ever wanted that job in the first place. (laughs) Thanks very much. This is the team arguing against the motion. (laughs) On to round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. Here to speak first for the motion and making his way to the lectern, Paul Piller. He's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and at the Brookings Institution. He served 28 years in the U.S. intelligence community. He is here to argue for the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Piller. I want to start by talking about how we ought to think about this question we hear a lot of if-only kind of arguments. If only we used force here or used more force, or if only we had used more force or put our troops in here or there, something better would happen. Lots of speculation, lots of counterfactuals. We don't have to dwell just with speculation and counterfactuals. We have a real record out there of having done a lot of application of military force in, in this region. Uh, Data point number one, in fact, it's a whole string of data points, was, of course, the invasion of Iraq, which extended an expedition for another eight and a half years. That made things a lot worse for the United States, considering the trillion dollars of cost and the casualties and everything else. It made things worse for the region because it was a negative example of the so-called birth pangs of democracy and because it stimulated the kinds of sectarian conflict and consciousness we see in Syria and elsewhere. And it was certainly bad for Iraq, which t- where it touched off a civil war that has never ended and also gave rise to various forms of extremism that group ISIS or Islamic State or ISIL or whatever you want to call it that we're so worried about today, it was born under a different name as a direct response to our invasion of Iraq. ISIL did not exist before we went into Iraq. Now, one thing you hear often in the sort of if only category is if only we had somehow kept troops there beyond the eight and a half years. But the fact is we did try to up the ante militarily. We had the so-called surge. Remember that? And it, along with some other factors like disillusionment with the extremists among Iraqi Sunni Arabs, temporarily brought down the level of violence. But the surge failed. 
in its more fundamental political objective of providing the space for Iraqi politicians to reach an accommodation and build a new and more stable Iraqi political order. Let me just mention one other thing in the past briefly, because it comes under a different administration, uh, the intervention in Libya. Now, there you already have a, a civil war going, but we used force to help overthrow Gaddafi, and look at the mess that Libya is in now, about the closest thing we have in the region to a total anarchy. So what's going on here? Why do we have these unfortunate results? Well, I think there are several patterns that we've seen again and again. One is military force is good to accomplish a lot of things. It's pretty poor to accomplish a lot of other things. The U.S. military is a great hammer, but some of the thorniest problems we've got in the Middle East simply are not nails. Building political and social order is not primarily a matter of killing people. One's a matter of construction. The other's a matter of destruction. What has mattered again and again in places like Syria and Iraq and Libya and elsewhere is political will and political culture, and the will to reach political accommodation. And that can't be injected through the barrel of a gun. Thank you. Thank you, Paul Pillar. And that's our motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And our next debater will be speaking against the motion. I'd like to welcome to the lectern Brett Stevens. He is a deputy editorial page editor and foreign affairs columnist for the Wall Street Journal and author of the forthcoming book, America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. Please welcome Brett Stevens. The proposition we are debating this evening is this. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse, by which we mean intervening militarily. Notice that it falls to Paul and Aaron to defend that statement categorically. They must convince you that no matter what the circumstance, U.S. military intervention in the Middle East cannot be the answer. But also notice this. Michael and I are not arguing the opposite case. We are not saying bomb every time and everything. We are not saying, whatever the question, war is the answer. What we are arguing is not dogma and not absolutism. We are arguing the case for pragmatism. Ladies and gentlemen, ask yourselves this. If you were the president and you were in a position to use force to prevent the massacre by ISIS of the Yazidi people, would you authorize force would you send flights of F-18s to relieve the siege of Singer Mountain? Or would that simply have made things worse? If you had been George H.W. Bush in the spring of 1991, when Saddam Hussein was besieging the Kurds in northern Iraq, would you have launched Operation Provide Comfort to save them? Or did that just make things worse? All of this is an example of flexing America's muscles, of using the American military in the service of a good cause. So the question before you tonight is, are you for it, at least occasionally, or are you against it in every circumstance? Now, you heard from Paul, and soon you're going to hear from Aaron. And they will tell you, yes, but what about the intervention in Lebanon in 1983, and how did that turn out? And what about Iraq, as Paul just mentioned, and Afghanistan, and maybe the prospect of bombing Iran in the event that nuclear negotiations go nowhere? Let me make two points about this. Noting that military interventions and wars can go horribly wrong is not an argument in this debate. It is totally beside the point. 
Like everything in life, there are just wars and unjust wars, smart wars and dumb wars, smart wars that are badly executed and dumb wars that are well executed. And the second point is this. Telling us that actions have consequences tells us nothing about the consequences of inaction. Because what we are seeing today, contrary to what Paul just mentioned, in the Middle East, the near collapse of the Iraqi government, mass executions, the fall of cities like Mosul, Tikrit, and Fallujah, the vortex in Syria, the progressive radicalization of the Syrian opposition to the point that even al-Qaeda isn't radical enough, the beheading of, of journalists, millions of refugees straining the resources of Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey, all of this is not the consequence of flexing America's muscles. It is the consequence of a presidential decision in the last four years not to flex those muscles. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S., Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. I'd like to welcome Aaron David Miller. He is vice president for new initiatives at the Wilson Center. He served in the Department of State for two decades and has a new book out, The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. He's debating for the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron David Miller. John, um, I really do find myself, unfortunately, sadly, paradoxically, in the anomalous position of agreeing with almost everything Brett said. And at the risk of never being invited back to IQ2, (laughs) I, I have to say at the outset that this is a national conversation that is simply too important to be constrained and confined to simple propositions. I will defend the proposition, but the nuance is clear, and Brett made the case. And that is to say there is smart muscle flexing and there is dumb muscle flexing. And that anomaly has to be reflected, not just in the debate, but in the actual execution of policy. The application of military power can be effective, can be appropriate. Bush 41, for whom I worked, pushing Saddam out of Kuwait, and go read Baker's memoir on why Bush didn't continue that operation uh, to Baghdad. Bush 43's application of military power in Afghanistan, air power, local allies, good intel, managed in a matter of months to defeat al-Qaeda and to decimate the Taliban, at least for the moment. But in recent years, I would argue to you, respectfully and humbly, we have not been nearly as effective as in years past. Let me identify four, perhaps five, cautionary tales with respect to why you need to support our rendition of this motion. Number one, there is muscle flexing as overreach. Paul has referred to Iraq, what I call not to trivialize the men and women who served, who died, and who suffered life-crippling injuries from which they will never, ever recover. This turned out to be, in my judgment, with all due respect, a trillion-dollar social science experiment that fundamentally failed. 
Then you have muscle flexing as bluster. That is to say, talk without action. And I would argue, even though I have supported the president's willful refusal to militarize the American role in Syria in order to defeat Assad, ISIS is a different story now, that was an example of talk without action. That is dumb muscle flexing because it erodes and undermines credibility. Presidential rhetoric has to be rooted in reality. Then we have what I call one-off muscle flexing. That's Libya. That's where we, we in NATO took eight months to take care of Colonel Q, but without much regard or thought to the implications of what would come next, and we lost the first sitting ambassador since 1979. Chris Stevens is a consequence. And this is why this is deadly serious. What is happening tonight, this conversation, is not some sort of academic exercise. The mother of all military interventions may be not far away. If negotiations do not produce a comprehensive accord, if sanctions do not work with respect to the mullahs in Tehran, this president has set his own red line. He will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. We have committed ourselves to the Israelis repeatedly over the last several years not to preempt. We will do it for them. So I urge you when you vote, think about the consequences and implications both for and against of the application of military power. All right. Aaron David Miller, I'm sorry your time is up. Thank you very much. And that is our motion. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And our final opening statement will be against this motion. I'd like to welcome Mike Duran. He's a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. He served as senior director for the Near East and North Africa at the National Security Council. Please welcome Mike Duran. Uh, Look, it's true, it's true that we have to have wise use of force uh, as opposed to dumb use of force. I think we can all agree to that. Uh, If we're going to say, though, that we need to have a kind of bias in favor of restraint, then you're saying one of two things. You're saying that military action is either going to destroy some beneficial process that is ongoing, or you're saying that it is going to generate some new bad process that, that, that doesn't exist. And I think that that proposition, the proposition basically that Paul laid out, is the one that President Obama accepted when he took office in 2009. And I look at the last five years as a kind of referendum on that proposition, and I think it comes up, uh, and it comes up faulty, and I'd like to explain to you why. So what did we see over the last five years? We saw, uh, first of all, in Iraq, we saw the Maliki government become increasingly sectarian, increasingly dependent on Iraq, and increasingly dictatorial. Now, Paul, Paul said that the surge did not stop the civil war. It just lowered the violence a little bit. It's not true. It's not true. It, it, the surge created a political space that Maliki could have used to have created a more inclusive, uh, uh, a more inclusive government. It needed, though, continued American pressure which the Obama administration would not apply. That's what was happening in Iraq. So the civil war started up again. Meanwhile, in Syria, another civil war started, which had nothing to do whatsoever with the application of American force. It started uh, completely as a result of indigenous processes. But there, too, we have a sectarian Shiite government aligned with Iran uh, that is destroying Sunnis. Now, think about the, the extent of the destruction in Syria. Syria is a country of around 20 million people. 
9 million of them, possibly even 10 million of them, are now displaced. That's almost half the entire population of the country has been displaced. 3 million of them have been driven out of, uh, have been driven out of Syria and are now refugees in the surrounding countries, uh, risking to destabilize those, uh, destabilize those countries. So if you want to say that, the, that using military force is going to stop some kind of beneficial process that is ongoing, you can't make the argument. Because if you look at what's happening, the Middle East is spiraling out of control. And that's why President Obama finally had to apply force, because there was this process spiraling out of force. Now, Paul, Paul Pillar said something interesting. He said, you, you can't make people increase their will by use of military force. This is patently not true. The fact of the matter is that what we have in the Middle East are countries run by mafias or organizations like ISIS that are, first and foremost, mafia organizations. If somebody goes to the United States and beheads its citizens on television and the United States says, I'm not going to do anything, it sends a message to all of our allies in the region that if we're not going to go take action when our citizens are beheaded, we're certainly not going to come help them. If we don't put skin in the game, and skin in the game means military force, then we will, not, then we will undermine the will of our allies whom we need. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Duran. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Now on to round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. We have heard from each of the teams now, two teams of two. The team arguing for the motion, Paul Piller and Aaron David Miller, uh, made a presentation in which they said they are not against all use of force all of the time. They are against the use of force in a dumb way, that force has a downside, and that downside is unintended consequences that have costs. They ran through situations in history where this has already occurred, most recently uh, Iraq. The team arguing against the motion, Michael Duran and and Brett Stevens uh, argue uh, themselves, they say, that inaction also has unintended consequences. And they say also that that has been seen in the disintegration of Iraq and in the creation of ISIS. They uh, also make a case based on history. So what we want to do is is go look at some of these specifics, because we all know what we're talking about. We're talking about where do we go from here and what's happened in the recent past. And I want to I look at the fact that President Obama did indeed take a relatively restrained view on the situation in Syria and Iraq until August of 2014. And that makes me want to ask the side that's arguing for the motion. Did the president, was the president once on your side on this argument and then he switched to the other side? Aaron David Miller. Again, we're constrained and confined by a motion that is, um, in many respects, really not appropriate to the national conversation that has to be had. This president is risk-averse except in one area, where he has emerged to be George W. Bush on steroids. And that is the protection, that is the protection of, uh, of the continental United States. He's killed 10 times the number of um, terrorists, militants, extremists with predator drones. He's expanded the drone war to Pakistan, to Yemen, to Somalia. He killed bin Laden. He dismantled the So, but let me stop you before My, you go too far down that road, because I think we see where you're going. So are you saying that he has been uh, a muscle flexor and that it has what, not made things worse? What I'm saying is the reason he interceded is because the organizing principle of a nation's foreign policy 
It's the protection of the homeland. 9-11 was the second bloodiest day in American history. That is the organizing principle. That's why public opinion, frankly, has become risk-ready. Not because we believe or the president believes that he is somehow going to put the Iraqi and Syrian Humpty Dumpty back together again. I don't think go to Brett Stevens. He can't. Brett Stevens. Let me, you know, Aaron said something very interesting somewhere in his talk. He said, I think towards the end, he said, we have to find some middle ground between the overambitions of the freedom agenda, of the Bush doctrine, and perhaps the, the lack of ambition of what was the first five years of the, uh, of the Obama presidency. What is the Goldilocks formula? That's essentially, you would agree with me, that's what we're looking to do. And let me pr- make, make two brief suggestions. One of them is this. The purpose of American foreign policy should not be, particularly in the Middle East, should not be to make our dreams come true, because your dreams will never come true when it comes to the Middle East, not Israel-Palestine, not democracy in Iraq, not development in Afghanistan, not gay rights in Iran, and so on. However, we can have an achievable goal of keeping our nightmares at bay. We don't want Iran to get a nuclear weapon. We don't want ISIS to, to consolidate a caliphate in northern Iraq and Syria. We don't want the humanitarian disaster of Syria to spiral endlessly and affect all of its neighbors. Okay. How do we calibrate a foreign policy that keeps our nightmares at bay? Let, that is the question. Let's let Paul Pillar respond. You know, Brett's absolutely right that we can't uh, think in terms of what our dreams are in the Middle East. And that's exactly part of what uh, Aaron and I are criticizing. Again, Iraq 2003, the outstanding example, 2003 plus eight and a half years, we had a dream, or at least the makers of that war had a dream, of using the regime change in this central Middle Eastern state to stimulate free market economics and democracy, not just in Iraq, but throughout the region. It was trying to use military force to accomplish a more positive objective. And that's one of the ways we went wrong. You know, meeting real threats, absolutely. And Brett gave a couple of excellent examples in his initial presentation, but it's where we've gone beyond what about, meeting threats. Paul, what about the example he gave of the Yazidi community stuck on the top of a mountain facing genocide? That's not a threat to our national security. Was it our business militarily? Well, it was a threat to the Yazidis, and yeah. uh, I think there are some you know, very tactical decisions that have been very difficult for the administration to make, and we can get really down in the weeds in terms of you know, hitting this mountain rather than that mountain. And I don't think Aaron and I are saying, uh, despite the efforts of our, our worthy opponents to you know, frame the debate in a way that we have to say that every use of military force is for the worst. That's, of course, not what we're Aaron? saying. Yeah, may no. I just try to frame this? Look, we are stuck in a region we cannot transform and we cannot extricate ourselves from. That leaves only one course, which is, I would argue, my word, you transact. You decide what's doable from what isn't what is vital from what is discretionary. And when I say vital, what do I mean by vital? I mean an enterprise in which we are prepared to expend American lives, American treasure, and American credibility. Mike Duran. I just want to make one one point here um, about the importance of using military force. When If we don't show a bias toward action, then we won't have allies. We, we were accustomed as a result of the, the kind of rhetoric that we heard from Paul to think that when we use military force, we alienate people. It's not true. 
why do the people in the Middle East want us primarily for one thing, and that is our ability to, to provide security. Look at Syria today. If we want to solve Syria, or if we just want to make it a little bit better and keep it at, at a distance, we want to put others out in front. We want to have allies. We would like to have Turkey, one of the most important countries there, go and do things in, in Syria. Well, let me, let They're me, not, let, if I just, one, one sentence, sorry. Yeah. They're not going to go out and take risks in Turkey if they think that we might do like President Obama did a year ago with Syria and say, ah, you know what, I'm tired of this fight. They need to know we're going to go all the way with them and back them no matter what happens. Okay. And that requires military Paul, force. Paul Pillar, very good argument made by your opponents about our credibility, uh, which, which was put up in opposition to your saying that we make enemies by getting in there. And they're saying at least we're keeping allies by, by going in and showing strength consistently. Can you uh, respond to that? Yeah, one of the big myths uh, about credibility is that any time we back away from something that's either a losing proposition or not worth the effort, that somehow people and governments all over the world are going to think, oh, the Americans are a bunch of weak-kneed people who aren't going to stand up to, to their vital interests. That is simply not the case, and there's academic research on this, uh, that that's not the way that other governments think or perceive us. Brett Stevens. Look, um, what Paul said is just simply manifestly untrue. I think Paul and I would agree that we do not want Israel to attack Iran uh, in the event that Iran or the Israelis perceive that Iran is approaching a nuclear capability, some, some, some uh, point of no return. But when we show, when we tell the Israelis, when we announce that we have a red line in Syria and then we erase that red line, and the president goes before the cameras and says, oh, I never said red line. Uh, the world had a red line. It was someone else's red line. And by the way, I have this interesting diplomatic gambit that I've worked, off with, worked out with Sergei Lavrov. What does that tell decision makers in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv? It tells them that America's promise that it will not allow Iran to get nuclear weapons is a totally hollow promise that they cannot trust. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can ask the Israeli defense minister who is on record as saying this. Same story with the Saudis. We used to have a close defense alliance with the Saudis. The Saudis don't trust us anymore, which is why John Kerry had to go on bended knee to Riyadh a few weeks ago to say, no, this time we're okay. actually serious. Can Point I, made, I, and I want to take it to Aaron David Miller. We have spent, and again... What I'm about to say is my view. We have spent the last several years trying to preempt the Israelis from striking Iran prematurely on the assumption that negotiations and or sanctions, some combination of the two, would retard, ultimately undermine Iran's pursuit of a nuclear weapons capacity. Forget the weapon itself, just the threshold capacity. We have made commitments to the Israelis based on the assumption that if they stay their hand, and Iran moves to weaponize, we will do this. This president may well be called on, Brett, to make good on that. Nobody in the Middle East believes he'll actually do that. Uh, he said it, or he has, he's signaled it, suggested it, and so on. But the, uh, there is nobody, nobody in Riyadh, nobody in Jerusalem, nobody in Baghdad, and nobody in Tehran believes that he will actually use military force to stop Iran. Two, you know, things, it's, it's two things would undermine and destroy the Obama presidency, what remains of Obama's credibility. One is another consequential attack on the homeland. I'm not talking about a lone wolf-inspired attack. I'm talking about a directed attack that leads to scores of American casualties, regardless of his actions now. And the second, which three administrations have now committed themselves to, is Iran's crossing the threshold to weaponize. 
which is and and he yeah. he agrees with you. He agrees with you, and that's why he is caving in the negotiations. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Let's go to some questions from the audience. Mike's coming on your right-hand side. If you could stand up, please. Uh, My question is for the four side. Um, Assuming practicality that the sanctions are now becoming squishy, do you think it's worse to flex American muscle than to allow the Middle East to go into a nuclear arms race? I don't know what you mean by sanctions getting squishy. We can argue all night about sanctions that have worked in some cases and not worked in others, and there are all kinds of variables that take too much time to come into play. But I would mention just one example, and and we've cited it in other ways in the past. Libya, that was a successful use of sanctions against Gaddafi, and he made this tremendous turn away from his previous outrageous behavior with regard to his unconventional weapons programs, weapons of mass destruction, and his rampant involvement in international terrorism. And back in the 1990s, after several years of multilateral sanctions in which he felt both the economic hurt and the political hurt of being a pariah, he changed. He got out of the international terrorism business, and he opened up and gave up his unconventional weapons program. And that was all without use or even the threat of military force. That was a successful case. That, that's right, a, that's, a, that's a fanciful chronology. He gave up his weapons program after a massive application of American force in 2003. It was the example of the invasion of Iraq that turned him. It was also the invasion of Iraq that, that compelled the Iranians to stop their weaponization, uh, their weaponization can you program. Intrig- I, can I, know, I know it is wrong Hitler. because I was personally involved in the negotiations with the Libyans back in 1999. I was personally, four years before I was that, personally involved with the uh, in the. Four years I was personally involved that, in the negotiations to and that delist the delist wait, wait, the uh, Libyans. Mike, wait, we got some real insiders here. Mike, will you wait? The, and and Paul, you make me, your point. I'll come back to you. Here is, hang on, <laughs> Paul. Gaddafi made those decisions in the 1990s. When I sat down across the table from his intelligence chief, he had already decided to get out of the unconventional weapons programs and get out of international terrorism. That was four years before. His, his, okay, his, Mike Duran. His intelligence chief, Musa Kusa, uh, one, was his name. Great name, yeah, Musa Kusa. Musa Kusa once had a beautiful villa overlooking the Mediterranean. Uh, and he came home one day to, to, his, to his villa, and it was turned into rubble, bulldozed into nothing. Uh, and there was a message for him that the, that the leader wants to see you. Uh, and so he went to go see the leader. And the leader said, Musa, that villa. And he said, yes. He said, I didn't like it. It wasn't right for you. And he handed him some keys, and he said, I've built another villa for you, and I want you to have that. And he gave him this other villa. Uh, and so what was the message? The message was, don't get too big for your britches. Everything you've got comes from me, and I can destroy you in an instant. That's the mentality of a leader in the Middle East. And you've got to ask yourself, if that's who we're dealing with, do we deal with them with soft power or do we deal with them with hard power? All right, let's go to another question, sir. I'm Alex Elfakir. I'm a student at Princeton University, and uh, thank you for having me here this evening. Uh, Mr. 
uh, Pillar and Mr. Miller. Uh, your point of only fighting smart wars is well taken. However, military force is not bound to times of war. How can the United States effectively influence the perceptions, calculations, actions, and goals of its adversaries, particularly those who only deal in terms of violence without a muscular foreign policy? Thank you. I think that, in, that as long as you calculate means and ends, and that, in, in effect, military power, the projection of it, is an instrument to serve a set of political goals, then military power can be an effective tool. What do you do, however, in a situation like Egypt, where, in, in effect, they are an ally, former ally, still our ally? Uh, we have a freedom agenda. We want to promote democracy in a country that um, is, uh, since the overthrow of Mubarak, has been dominated by a struggle between the military on one hand and the Islamists on the other. We have to be artful and relatively sophisticated. My, my, my basic point is, in a, in a region in turmoil, it's simply going to be very difficult to create an action-reaction uh, phenomenon. That's why I go back to the notion of understanding what our core interests are, identifying them, and then trying to protect them. Uh, let me go to this side because uh, Aaron has made that point a few times about core interests. He's been pretty clear about them. But you had us rescuing Yazidis in Syria, and we didn't really get very far with that question. I don't want to delve into it too much. But, but what are our core interests in terms of using force? Well, one thing is we don't want to allow genocide to happen to happen against a helpless population of women and children tra- starving and trapped on a mountain. So that is a core interest. Yes. Well, that is that is a core democratic value, I would say, and we are a country where values do often. Let me stop you and ask the other side: Is that a core interest? Look at our behavior. How can you argue it's a core interest? We are incredibly hypocritical when it comes to humanitarian intervention. We decide what is feasible, what is convenient, and we essentially ignore the tough cases. Bill Clinton, to this day, and the late Fuad uh, Ajami called him to count. This is your Rwanda, President Obama. So you're saying so it's not, th- these are not core interests, you're I, saying? I mean, look, our interests... I just, I'm just looking for clarity. Know, you're looking for a short answer. I understand no, that. No, yes or no that. is a short... Our, <laughs> our interests and our values and our policies are constantly at war with one another. On the issue of genocide, we have not been consistent. Brett? I was just going to say we're a country that in a sense is unique and that we often find ourselves defining our interests by our values rather than the, uh, than the other way around. And by the way, a reputation for being a humane hegemon is good for us in the long run. It allows us to maintain a Pax Americana in the way that the Russians were not able to maintain a Soviet peace in their sphere of influence because At some level, countries around the world understand that we operate differently from the Iranians, the Chinese, and the Russians. And it's what makes makes countries want to be our allies, our friends, our trading partners. So, yes, uh, we do have an interest in making sure when we can tip the scales at relatively low cost to ourselves that we shouldn't allow atrocities to happen. That's not the kind of country we were born to be. And I think this is a common-sense proposition all of you would agree with. Uh, in the back, they're wearing a necktie. Thanks. Uh, hi, my name is Kas Shashi. Uh, Mike Tensnick had a brilliant structure to think about the impact, one where whether it stops any good process and whether it generates any bad process in the future. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what your thoughts are about what, what are the bad, bad processes that, that the military intervention would generate that you don't think it would? Wait, so you're saying what, what are the bad consequences of inaction? 
No, I think I, I think I oh, got him. He was saying, "What are the what are some of the bad things that our action could generate?" Is that what you're is that what you're saying? But why yeah. would but why would you want this side to believe that this side would want to give you all that ammunition? I can to answer. That side? I can answer that. <laughs> okay. Answer all right. Go ahead. I can I can answer it. Uh, uh, look, the the problem that you have is that um, is that we can never know the future. Um, so it's always a question of do the risks of inaction, are the risks of inaction worse than the risks of action? Um, and so that's why I argued that we should have a bias toward action because lack of action de- destroys our alliances. And if, if we desire to keep this region at a distance, then we have to persuade other actors on the ground to take action in order so that we don't have to go in unilaterally. I don't think our foreign policy ought to be biased one way or the other, toward action or toward inaction. It ought to be an unbiased weighing of costs and benefits and weighing of those core interests that we were talking about a moment ago and not come at it with a preconception that we ought to be acting more than inacting or the other way around. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. On to round three, closing statements. First, summarizing his position in support of the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Paul Piller, a senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown and former national security officer. You know, we Americans have an awful lot of faith uh, in our ability to do great things overseas, it is well-founded faith because we have done some great things, including with the use of military force, like Brett mentioned earlier in his opening remarks. World War II is probably the best example of all. But some things even we, the superpower, can't do even with our military might. I've served in the U.S. military and in a foreign conflict. In my case, it was as an Army officer in the Vietnam War. That war was an extremely painful lesson to us, the American people, about the limitations of what we can do with military force. And among the bad consequences it had was getting to the issue of credibility. It reduced the credibility that the U.S. would use that military instrument in other better ways because of the American people's reaction to what had happened. Enough years went by, and we finally got over what happened and what we called the Vietnam Syndrome. And one way we demonstrated we got over, with it, over it was uh, another thing that Brett mentioned, the splendid victory in the Middle East, reversing Saddam Hussein's aggression against Kuwait in 1991. But the problem is, since then, we've been thinking more and doing more of using military force not just to reverse someone else's aggression, like in World War II or Operation Enduring Freedom. We got into other things, changing regimes we didn't like or taking part in someone else's civil war, or trying to inject democracy through the barrel of a gun. Leadership is not just flexing muscle. It is having the wisdom to know the limitations and the costs and the risks, and most of all, to follow the Hippocratic principle of first, do no harm. Thank you, Paul Piller. The motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Brett Stevens, a foreign affairs columnist and member of the editorial board at The Wall Street Journal. For the last few years, uh, the United States has conducted precisely the kind of diplomacy and geopolitical strategy that uh, Paul Pillar has spent this evening uh, uh, advocating. 
We have focused on nation building at home. We have had a president who has told us time and again that the tide of war is receding. We've had a president whose bias, generally speaking, has been toward inaction, not action. We've had an administration that believes that the best course for the United States is to reduce its footprint, particularly in the Middle East, to pivot away from that region, to look at Asia, to look at our own problems at home, with the idea that in so doing, that region would perhaps sort out its own problems and affect us less. And yet the reality is exactly the opposite of what we have seen. A RAND Corporation study showed that the number of jihadists in the Middle East, of jihadi groups and jihadi fighters, more than doubled between 2010 and 2014, precisely during the time that the Obama administration was saying the tide of war is receding and precisely during the time that we were essentially following the, the, the counsel of our opponents on the other side of the stage. We have not made the world go away. We have not made the world a, a, a safer, uh, safer place. The world is more dangerous today than it was a few years ago. Machiavelli once said, the best policy is to be a firm friend and a thorough foe. For the last few years, we have been neither. We have to change that or we will imperil our security here in New York. Thank you, Brett Stevens. And the motion is, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Aaron David Miller, Vice President for New Initiatives at the Wilson Center and former U.S. Mideast negotiator. Uh, thanks, John. And Mike and uh, Brett, Mike and Brett, it's, I appear with you guys all the time. We have to do this again. Two, two days before the Camp David summit, um, President Clinton remarked to us, he knew the odds were long, that trying and failing was better than not having tried at all. And I remember how inspired I was by his remarks. I began to understand that trying and failing is better than not trying at all is an appropriate slogan for a high school college football team. It is not a substitute for a foreign policy of the most consequential nation on earth. We need to think before we act, and we need to understand above all that the dividing line for a smart foreign policy is not between left and right, not between liberal and conservative. It's between smart on one hand and dumb on the other. And the only question that you have to decide, and I implore you to vote for this motion, because I think our arguments have struck the right balance between risk readiness on one hand, risk aversion on the other. A clear definition of when U.S. military power and its projection is important and vital, and when it is not. Three questions need to be asked. Number one, what are we trying to achieve by deploying military force? Number two, do we have the means at our disposal to accomplish our ends? And number three, above all, what will it cost? You ask those questions, you're firm and resolute, and American interests can be protected. Thank you, Aaron David Miller. Our motion is flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Here to summarize his position against this motion, Mike Duran. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and former senior director at the National Security Council. Paul would have us believe that we can stay back, sit back away from the region, and not be involved in the sectarian fight on the ground. Uh, and it's simply not true. 
I once uh, had a, a good friend who uh, went on the Peace Corps to Tuvalu, little Pacific nation, um, and I found out that the people of Tuvalu were very angry with us uh, because we had come up with some fishing regulations that uh, destroyed their economy. Of course, nobody in America even knew that we did this. It's the same thing in, in the Middle East. We are, we are judged by our action and we are judged by our inaction. Um, and we are participants by the nature of our size and our historic role in the Middle East, in the sectarian conflict, in all of the conflicts in the region, whether we think we are or not, whether we stay out or whether we don't. Um, so the question is not whether to intervene or, or not to intervene. It's how to shape what's going on there. And the most important resource that we have in order to keep us from having to have massive interventions like the kind that we had in, in uh, Iraq in two, 2003 is to build up our alliances. And the only way we can build up our alliances is by providing security to our friends. And that's why we have to use military force so that we will not have the kind of wars that Paul wants to prevent. Thank you, Mike Duran. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued best. Okay. So it's all in. I have the final results. The motion is this. Flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. That was the motion. And before hearing the debate, our live audience here in New York voted this way. 26% agreed with the motion. 31% were against. 43% were undecided. That's a large figure for us. So those are the first results. Remember, now you have voted a second time. And the winner is the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms from the first vote to the second. So let's go to the second vote. On the motion, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 44 That's 26% to 45%. They picked up 19 percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team arguing against the motion, uh, their first vote, 31%. Second vote, 45%. They pulled up 14 percentage points. It's not quite enough. The team arguing for the motion wins our debate. That is, flexing America's muscles in the Middle East will make things worse. Our congratulations to them, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer, Robert Rosencrantz is chairman, Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers, Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer, Clea Chang, director of production, Chris Kamakawa is our researcher, and I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org to hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast visit npr.org forward slash Intelligence Squared want to get in on the debate follow Intelligence Squared on Twitter and jump in on the conversation just go to at iq2us crucial support for the Intelligence Squared US debates comes from its generous members and donors with a special thank you to the Rosencrantz Foundation Christopher W. Johnson Profit Capital Asset Management, the Georgie Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Paul E. Singer, David A. Coulter, and Mortimer Sackler. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.
Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. It's fall, and there is so much new to watch, listen to, read, and discuss. Whether you're binge-watching, downloading, or looking for the next great read, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast calls out the best, most creative, and most fun things out there. Something new to make you happy. Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find it on iTunes under Podcasts.